This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is supported in part by Blue Apron and The Great Courses Plus. And we are back. Now, there's something new. No contraction. I like it. <laughs> well, I got to get you ready for the Old West in the mid-19th to late-19th century speak. Oh, yeah. We got a couple shows down the road. We're going to be going back to the Old West. I think so. Well, there's not a ton of business to get through tonight, but we did want to say thank you so much to all of our patrons who've been supporting us over at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. It really does help keep the lights on in Blanket Fortiana, where we record. And we need the lights on because I get scared in the dark during some of our stories. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you notice I did bring a lamp in tonight. Yeah, a little banker's lamp here. Circa 1983. Exactly. Well, speaking of uh, protective talismans and lights here, we've also got to up the talisman count in here because we're getting a pretty good collection of those mailed in from you guys. But they aren't all properly displayed. Yeah, that's true. We got a whole box full. We got to get them out here. And by the way, all Dybbuk boxes and weird, creepy dolls <laughs> will be returned to sender or in lieu of a return address, properly sent to the nearest convenient parallel dimension. <laughs> you know what? I also just like to weave weird dolls with spells on people's lawns. Remember yeah. that one in Indonesia that was being left on the street? Oh, yeah. It had the blindfold that had the binding spell on it so it wouldn't see you and cast a curse on you. That yeah. was pretty creepy. But, I've got uh, no use for that. Yeah, people love that kind of stuff. That's why I do it. <laughs> okay, so now that Tess is running things at Patreon and we've launched a new store with our new website, we're finally corralling all things related to getting those of you who our patrons, your appointed swag. So this week and next, we're catching up on overdue stickers, mugs, and shirts as stock levels permit. And with the help of one of Tess's magical spreadsheets, we're just a half step away to getting your overdue stuff out to you. So if anything does happen to be out of stock, don't worry, because we've got some new designs queued up to roll out over the next few weeks. All right, so there's one last piece of super important business to hit here. Indeed, there is. If you're listening to our show, then you know that listening to it is absolutely free to you. That's because of our friends at Blue Apron and The Great Courses Plus. Even though it's hard for us to stomach, we're pretty sure Astonishing Legends is not the only podcast you listen to. After all, listeners like to play the field, <laughs> which is as it should be. Yes, and if you want to help Astonishing Legends, as well as your other favorite shows, stay free to download, you can do that by completing an extremely short, anonymous survey that takes no more than five minutes. Five minutes? That's awesome. I spent ten minutes complaining about a bad sandwich on Yelp yesterday. <laughs> oh, so you're that guy. That's me. <laughs> That's what I thought. No, no, it's not really me. No. But this one, seriously does only take five minutes, and it's pretty amazing because if enough of you guys do it, our show and all of your other favorite shows get insight into how we can make what we do better for you. So please, for Astonishing Legends and all of your other favorite shows, go to podcast.study to complete the anonymous survey. That's podcast.study, people. It takes five minutes. And also, I told the research people that we would have the most folks do this because our listeners are the best listeners in the world. Aww. All right, let's head to the Bermuda Triangle. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Damn it, if we would just fly west, we would get home. An unidentified student pilot from Fort Lauderdale-based Training Flight 19 as overheard on the radio just two hours before all five aircraft and 14 airmen vanished without a trace. Join us tonight for part one of our series on the most famous aviation disappearance in the history of the Bermuda Triangle.
All right, so tonight's show contains numerous sound design cues, courtesy of our sound designer, Ryan McCullough, that are reenactments of actual radio dialogue relating to Flight 19 that is available in the 500-page Naval report that was part of the investigation into the incident. Would this be some of the Astonishing Legends players? Yeah. I'm not, honestly, at this point, he hasn't made it yet as we're Uh, recording this, so I'm not sure if you and I are going to wind up in there. (laughs) Who will be the players? But uh, hopefully he's got some friends. Okay. uh, Even though these are taken from actual radio transcripts, some of them are simplified from what was actually said just to make it a little bit easier to understand. There's a lot of, with this one, this has got a lot of military angles on it, and you're going to hear a lot of it from us, but we are trying to make things a little bit easier to follow. Yeah, if you've ever listened in on uh, airport control chatter, it's a lot of short codes. Yes, yeah, exactly. Terminology. So there were, as there always are, numerous sources for tonight's show, but we wanted to mention one book in particular. It's called The Disappearance of Flight 19, which uh, you might have seen if you're following us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. It was published in 1980, and it was written by pilot and author Larry Cush. He also wrote the critically acclaimed Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved. At least he put a dash between mystery and solved. (laughs) Well, it's not really a dash. It's in a whole different typeface on the cover. But that book came out in 1975. I know we make fun of things that say solved. (laughs) I only have a problem if it's the title, then a dash, then the word mystery solved with exclamation points. Yeah. Or or a couple, because you're definitely claiming you know exactly what happened. Now, what I will say here, though— is that he gets as close as you can get from a very reasonable and rational and very well-researched standpoint. I mean, there's a lot of connections. Certainly, if you look them up on the interwebs, you'll see the connection between his thoughts on the Bermuda Triangle and Flight 19. Yes. Well, the Flight 19 book, I did read cover to cover. In fact, I could not put it down. It was one of the most compelling investigative books I've come across since we started doing this show. I was really thoroughly impressed with how deep his investigation was, how much research he did, how many people he interviewed, the fact that he dove into the report to find transcripts of discussions. He investigated the search. He investigated everything that happened after the search and up until the days that he published the book in 1980. There's newer editions out of it now. But overall, it's a very, very thorough approach to the investigation. And without giving away where we're headed with this series, if when we finish you feel like you want to get more information, I would highly recommend that people check out the book, The Disappearance of Flight 19 by Larry Cush. Yeah, it's going to have all the information in there presented in a very even keeled way. All right. So last week we talked about pilot Bruce Gurnan, who was on the show, and he discussed what was a seemingly natural phenomenon that transported his plane and all three of its occupants forward in time and space, far beyond the capabilities of what a Beechcraft Bonanza A36 was able to do. And he detailed exactly how that happened. And if you missed that episode, you can go back to our feed and look for a show called Electronic Fog. The thing about that one was that it was the most natural segue into the next story because some people have made a connection between electronic fog and what happened to Bruce and the disappearance of Flight 19. Well, the whole area is essentially the same. It's the southern Florida Bermuda area and, of course, the Bermuda Triangle. So there's a geographical connection, but also possibly a phenomenological Phenomenal, phenomenon, phenomenon. Is that the word you made up a few episodes ago? Phenomenal, phenomenological. <laughs> that's a real word. I'm just not saying it. Probably. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, okay. it's, it's, there's a phenomenon possibly involved. And if you've been listening to the last few shows from Kexburg to the Nazi Bell to Bruce in a strange way, and that there's related strange phenomenon that's been created either man made or naturally. 
to Flight 19 here. There's a through line. And we're not going to keep continuing on with it. And not to prove that everything's kind of connected in that way, but you can make a connection here. Yeah, you can. And one of the things that Bruce and Robert, his co-author McGregor, suggested in their book regarding Flight 19, which does have a chapter on Flight 19, was that maybe the storm that he flew through was part of a cyclical phenomenon, which these do happen, where the same storm forms the same time of year, right. every year, and then every few years may even take the same exact path as it took 10 years ago or 40 or 20 or 30, and it's almost an identical thing. And having lived in North Carolina, I've seen this with hurricanes. And he suggested maybe there's a possibility. He was flying 25 years almost to the day yeah. in pretty much exactly the same area. So that's yeah. just that's just something we wanted to put out there, and, and it connects back to last week's episode. Right, and what I love is that when people have heard this and commented to me about it, the phenomenon that Bruce went through is naturally generated. It's a fact of extreme weather, whether you want to believe that or not. But it's not ghosts, it's not UFOs, it's just something that happens very rarely, but it happens under extreme what I call extreme physics conditions. All right, so let's get into it. December 5th, 1945, about three months after the end of World War II, there was a training mission taking off out of the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale. It took off 25 minutes late at about 2.10 p.m. in the afternoon. It was five Grumman TBM Avengers. They were headed out to sea to practice torpedo bombing and navigation by dead reckoning, which we're going to explain in a minute. Now, the conditions that day were classified as average to undesirable, which sounds like if I was flying an airplane and undesirable, you don't want to do undesirable? I wouldn't go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not, look, it's not exactly desirable, but average means it's okay to fly, just be cautious. Yes, and yeah. undesirable is a little unpleasant, but this is a military operation. No, they Unpleasantness like, <laughs> is not going to make you stand out. Pleasantness doesn't wait for your war conditions, yeah, your yeah. attack conditions. You have to go if you can. That's also a very good training element. I could see them, even if it was a little bit questionable, you as a civilian pilot may question that, but at a military training, it's like you have to know how to fly in severe weather. Right, exactly. It's going to come up. And especially in this area, severe weather can come up very quickly. Yes. Even if it's not electronic or <laughs> it's not uh, time traveling. But this wasn't particularly severe weather. This was just low cloud cover right. and light rain. It's nothing that would necessarily keep you on the ground. No, and it's sunny. So good visibility for the conditions at the time. So they headed out over the Atlantic Ocean on a course towards the Bahamas, that would actually take them just north of Andros Island, which featured prominently in last week's episode about electronic fog. In fact, if you take a look at the chart that Bruce Gernon sent us that we posted with last week's episode at our website, you can see Andros Island and you look at the donut on the chart, which I had highlighted in red to make it easier to see, which is how he drew the storm out that he flew through. The northern edge of that donut, probably the top 4% of it, directly intersects the course that Flight 19 was scheduled to take. Right. Along the way, as part of their training, they stop at a little tiny defenseless collection of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're coral shoals. Yeah, it's a yeah. reef. It's known as Hen and Chicken Rocks and or Hen and Chicken's Island. I've also heard Hen and Chicken Shoals, which that sounds like a restaurant, doesn't it? Yeah. They're delicious. There are restaurants called that. In fact, when, I, when we were researching, the not the oh. shoals, but uh. Hen and Chicken's. <laughs> okay. There's a whole bunch of Hen and Chicken's Islands all right. over the world 
which was news to me when we started this show. Yeah. I was surprised. There's a lot of I don't know hens and, hen and chickens. I don't know why it's not hens and roosters, because one term covers the other. Right. Unless, uh, you know, hens and roosters might be the uh, the bathrooms at a line dancing place. So, <laughs> okay. All right. So that's their first destination. It's actually not very far away. It's 56 nautical miles. By the way, when you hear us mentioning miles in this series, it will always be nautical miles. I and mean, we'll probably point it out. And nautical mile is 1.15 statute miles, which is regular land miles. So yeah. it's a little bit further. So anyway, they get out to Hen and Chickens. They actually practice bombing there where they're circling and dropping their bombs for about 20 minutes. Then they get back on their original course, which is more or less due east. And not too long after that, they actually had radio contact with Flight 18, which took off 25 minutes earlier than them and was doing the exact same run. And Flight 18 had just made a turn on the run and apparently one of the students in that flight had turned too fast. And Lieutenant Willard Stoll, who was the instructor on that flight, was chewing a student out on the radio when Lieutenant Taylor, who is our fearless leader... He's on, overseeing Flight 19, the training. Now, they're not the one leading. They're having a student pilot lead the group because he's observing. Right, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes they lead, but most of right. the time they're in the back and the students lead because yeah. they're supposed to be the ones learning. Exactly. But in this case, Taylor, who was leading Flight 19, says to Lieutenant Stoll, leading Flight 18, about chewing out a student, quote... End quote. <laughs> Keep in mind, they can all hear each other on the radio, even though they're different groups of planes. Yeah, and they're, they're, the and they're not frequency. necessarily in sight. The range yeah. is 125 miles. Exactly, right. So it makes sense that they would have been able to talk to each other at this moment, considering that Flight 18 was 25 minutes ahead on the same course, which actually would have had them, in this case, turning back towards Fort Lauderdale. So they were basically yeah. going the other way and probably not more than 40 or 50 miles away. But it's important to note here, yes, these different groups and different pilots, even though they can't see each other, can hear each other on the radio. That's right. But maybe not all the time. Exactly. Okay. So after the bombing practice, they return on their due east course towards the first of three major turns for this run that would eventually lead them back to the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale, the entire run being around 300 nautical miles. So after making that first turn to the north-northwest on a heading of 346 degrees, everything appeared to be okay. Now, for those of you playing at home who might not have any experience <laughs> navigating by a compass, in the simplest terms, think of due north as zero degrees, due east as 90 degrees, due south as 180 degrees, and due west as 270 degrees. Or if you think of a clock with north being at noon, east is at 3 p.m., south at 6 p.m., and west at 9 p.m. If you go around the face of the clock, 360 degrees, you come back to north. There is actually no 360 on a compass. There is 359, and then it's back to zero. Is that making sense? Yes, because 360 would be an extra tick on the dial. Yes. But here's a term, though, when fighter pilots say, he's at your six, means he's at your back. Or nowadays we say, I got your six, and that's what it means. If you imagine you're sitting in the middle of a clock face that's flat to the ground. That's right. Noon is in front of you, six is at your back, three is at your right, Nine is at your left, and when a plane's coming in, he's at high noon. That means uh, he's bearing down at you. Right, and that's when you're using the clock, and then the nice thing about the clock is, is it's not specific to whether or not you're flying north. It's specific to the direction of your craft. Yes. I'm trying to make it a little easier to understand right. under the premise that noon is north in this particular case, just to understand <laughs> yeah. how the dial works. But the nice thing about the clock thing is if you're on my six, you're behind me, doesn't matter which way I'm going. Well, However, exactly. yeah. if you're on a heading of... 180 or 180 degrees, yeah. you are headed south. That is anchored to the compass dial because you need some kind of registration point. Right, which is anchored to the earth. And just so you know, there's a true north, which is map 
north, and then there's magnetic north because the poles are slightly off. That's right. But the charts all show the deviation, and yes. it depends on where you are on the Earth, and right. you have to calculate for that deviation, which is further away the further north you get. And over the thousands of years, it will change a little because it the, shifts. The, yeah, the Earth is wobbling actually yeah. on its axis. So and the magnetic field is wobbling independently of the Earth. Right. Have we gone too far? <laughs> I don't, we, no, no, I think, I think people, people, you know what? I, there's people I know who don't know. People who can't people, like get to the gas station without a GPS uh, or, or like, all right, I'm skipping this one. Scott, <laughs> <laughs> no, I know a few people. They don't know how north, south, east, and west. They don't know how that works. I think it would be rudimentary and life would be so much easier if you just knew them. There's only four of them, people. Come on. Yeah. There's, there's only four directions. But I do know some people and it never comes up for them, so they just never learned it. Anyway, recapping, Flight 19 has successfully departed from Fort Lauderdale, flown due east, practiced bombing a defenseless little shoal, then moved on to their first turn to the north-northeast, where they were supposed to fly a little over 70 nautical miles to their next turn. This is where things start to get sideways. Perhaps literally. I don't know where we are. We must have gotten lost after that last turn. Another pilot in the air on a separate mission, Lieutenant Robert F. Cox, heard that call, presumably from Lieutenant Taylor himself. But Cox didn't know that because he heard no call sign. So Cox is actually also a senior flight instructor at Fort Lauderdale, the exact same station Lieutenant Taylor had flown out of. It's not unusual they didn't know each other. The station was extremely busy, and many officers had never spoken to each other or even met. Now, Lieutenant Cox responded to the lost pilot asking the speaker to identify himself. At that first moment, he wasn't even sure if it was a boat or a plane because they were all using the same frequency. The pilots were on what was known as the training frequency, 4,805 kilocycles. And there were ships on this frequency as well. So he couldn't be sure when he heard somebody talking about being lost, whether it was a boat. Somebody got lost after a turn. That was all he knew. So he asked for clarification. Yeah, he said, boat or plane, please identify yourself so we can help you. This is MD-28. Both my compasses are out, and I'm trying to get to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. MD-28, this is FT-74. Put the sun on your port wing if you were in the Keys and fly up the coast until you get to Miami. The air station is directly on your left from the port. What is your present altitude? I will fly south and meet you. I know where I am now. I'm at 2,300 feet. Don't come after me. MT-28, Roger. You're at 2,300. I'm coming to meet you anyhow. All right, so that's the end of the most detailed exchange that was had between Lieutenant Taylor and any would-be rescuers that day. There was a lot more conversations, but they were often incomplete or partially one-sided due to technological limitations and interference from terrestrial radio stations in Cuba, believe it or not. And all that would worsen as the day goes on because as the sun goes down, the quality of the air changes, radio waves travel further, which means interference also travels further, and you just get a lot more noise and things get complex. But it brings up a big question I had. Who's hearing what? Yeah, the end result of this is that Lieutenant Cox felt that he needed to fly his aircraft, call sign FT-74, towards the Florida Keys to try and find Lieutenant Taylor's flight. But he never would find them. In fact, no one ever saw them again. Tonight, we'll take a deeper look into what happened to Flight 19. What's on the menu this evening, sir? 
Are you doing that train spotting impression again? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sort of, but I'm actually curious about what you're having tonight. That would be the pork chops and miso butter with bok choy and marinated apple. Ooh, nice. Blue apron, of course. Of course. It's now a family tradition. And besides, I can't make stuff like that on my own. <laughs> I didn't think so. I need some direction. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, what I do know is that everything stops, including researching and recording this show, when it's a blue apron night over at the Philbrooks. And speaking of research, I guess it's also true that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. Well, it's definitely true at our house because now everyone's more engaged with dinner. They enjoy helping out and seeing the meal come together almost as much as eating it. Well, well, probably more so eating it because even though it's a lot of fun to make, it's even more delicious because you can taste the high quality of the ingredients. Yeah, I got to say for me, it's not only the fresh and interesting ingredients, but these recipes are so smartly planned by the Blue Apron culinary team that if I just follow the easy-to-use recipe cards, I can actually produce a restaurant-quality meal. And for about $10 per person per meal. <laughs> okay, so now you're doing that. Well, I want to get in on the fun, too. <laughs> All right, then. We'll tell the audience about how to get our amazing Blue Apron offer, and then you do the tagline. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. <laughs> Not too shabby, Philbrook. This is Nick Jones. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. In an effort to make our show a little bit easier to follow. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we, because we're learning things now that we're publishing the 65th one. <laughs> have we had complaints? People can't follow along. Haters going to hate. But yeah. anyway, um, <laughs> we, well, yeah, we're going uh, back to college, which is very difficult for both of us to remember. We're going to do mm. a little bit of that thing where we tell you what we're about to tell you. So I just quickly wanted to explain yeah. that in, in part one of our series, what's happening tonight with Flight 19, what you got was a little taste of what happened to the flight and how it disappeared. And now we're going to get more specific about the communications that were heard over the radios and everything that happened leading up to the largest search and rescue mission ever attempted at the time with over thousands of men and women, 200 planes, 17 ships, searching up to 300 miles out into the Atlantic Ocean for the entire 400-mile length of Florida. And this was all by December 6th, just two days after Flight 19 disappeared. Yeah. So keep in mind, it's five military aircraft and airmen. So you can realize this quickly became a big deal. Yeah, you can't have 14 guys go missing. Of course, even if it's one person missing, they're going to go out and do a very thorough search as best they can and put as many people on it as they can. But this is a large party. I believe the other aspect of this, which I find interesting, is that you should be able to find these guys. It's not like they took a trip across the Atlantic. They're kind of in the area on a routine flight. And actually, that's part of what led to some delays in the search, which we'll find out later, was a little bit of a lack of concern because they had a 1,000 miles worth of fuel. They were just offshore doing this routine stuff. There's a dozen flights going out every day from all up and down the coast. 
everyone's going out and coming back. And a lot of times people are getting lost for a little bit. Sure. But they wind up coming back. And then there's another important aspect of it. Operationally, when something like this happens, you need to know what has happened so that it doesn't happen to the next team that goes up. Well, of course, yeah. So there's a lot of reasons besides just the humanity of it. So let's go back to the actual description of the flight they were going to be taking. I know we talked about it a little bit here earlier, but we wanted to get more specific about exactly what their training mission was supposed to be that day. It's a mission that was known as Navigation Problem Number One. Which is kind of a great title. It's a very poignant (laughs) title. It it sounds pretty benign, but it does have the word problem in it, which for me, you know, might induce a little anxiety, especially if I was expected to be flying an airplane when I encounter said problem. Right, but But uh, that's what the training is about. That's what training is about, You need to be able to think straight and do the right thing, the right procedure in any condition. Yes. And it's like with battle testing, they fire bullets, live bullets over your head as you're crawling in the mud. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. Because if they just shouted at you and threw wadded paper, it's not the same as being in battle. So these guys need to be challenged. That's right. And this hop, which is a military term for a short flight like this or flight that goes up and comes back, it's like hopping a plane. Island hopping. Uh, Well, that's not where it comes from. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But I looked it up because I wanted to know where it came from. It's interesting. It's not a term that civilian aviators use, apparently, but it is a term that military aviators use. Everyone, of course, has heard it in Top Gun. Gentlemen, this is Hop 19. Oh, yeah. Yeah, But Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. anyway, this hop was designed to teach pilots about dead reckoning, which according to the Smithsonian Institute, is when you start at a known or assumed position and you use simple but reliable tools to track three things, your compass heading, speed, and how much time you've spent on each heading at each speed. And just because I love the hunt for Red October, you remember, Forrest, when the navigator on Captain Ramius's boat, the Red October, is bragging about navigating that tight underwater canyon. He goes, give me a stopwatch and a map and I'll fly the Alps in a plane with no windows. <laughs> to which the dive officer replies to him, if the map is accurate enough. <laughs> but of course, that yeah. leaves out one very important component, the compass. He doesn't mention the compass there. No, and which compass, you have to have. yeah, and it has to be accurate because you need those three elements to make it work. And even then, by human standards, it's what they call cumulative error in that if you're off a little bit, it gets worse and worse as you go on. And you heard us talk about this in the Amelia Earhart episodes, where dead reckoning, if you're off a little bit, after an hour and a half, two hours, you're really way off. Yeah, you're off a lot. Yeah. And you don't see the things you expect to see out the window when you're in an airplane. And in a submarine, you don't have windows, so you're even more hosed. But yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> these planes, the TBM Avengers, the T is for torpedo, yeah. and the B is for bomb, and right. they fly over and drop the torpedoes in the water, and the torpedoes right. hit the submarine. And to clarify here, that third letter in the airplane's designation, the military one, is a naval designation of the manufacturer. So for naval airplanes, I believe that came out in 1922, and that's a designation. So M stands for Martin, which is the aircraft manufacturer. Why? You've heard of the PBY, Consolidated PBY plane, the Y stands for the company Consolidated, which makes the plane. That's right. In fact, according to the National Naval Aviation Museum, 9,836 Avengers were built. 7,546 of them were turned out by General Motors Eastern Aircraft Division, and the General Motors ones were designated TBMs. Right. Which is what these were. Yes. Additionally, a little known fact, which I didn't have down in the script here, but I will point it out just quickly, Lieutenant Taylor's TBM Avenger had a more powerful motor by 200 horsepower. However, that only gave it an additional six knots of cruising speed. Yeah. So he had to throttle back to keep up with his students a little bit. 
So right. he had just it had a little more power. So well, he's, it's, he's like Darth Vader. He's got the souped up model of the uh, Tie Fighter. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> it, it's interesting that at 200 horsepower only gave him six more knots of cruising speed. But what fascinates me about that is just the, what little I know about engines yeah. and physics and that sort of things. And I remember specifically on Top Gear before it got submarined by Jeremy Clarkson's uh, fracas <laughs> when James May road tested the Bugatti Veyron for a yes. top speed run. I saw that. And it got up to like 220 miles an hour. But I remember he's talking about that car. Is, it's a 1,000 or 1,200 horsepower. I can't yeah. remember. But I remember him saying that a small part of that horsepower was to get it to like 180. And then it took like another 800 to get it the next <laughs> 20 or 40 miles an hour. So that's it's like the, at that yeah. point, you've got all the wind resistance and you're right. working with all, And so that's why this plane, even though it had 200 more horsepower, can only cruise six knots faster than right. the other Avengers. Everything's an equation. So to change the desired outcome, one part of that equation may have to be upped significantly to get a modicum of uh, performance out of it. Right. Anyway, getting back to Dead Reckoning, the point is, that's what Dead Reckoning is about. It's a scientific approach to pilotage. And it's a valuable thing to learn because as long as you have your compass, a map, and a watch, you should be able to figure out where you're going, even if you lack eyesight. No GPS required. Remember that. Compass, map, and watch. The presence and functionality of those items are critical to Dead Reckoning. Windows, not so critical. <laughs> no, but... But you do need to know which way the wind's blowing. Yes. Which is a whole other right. can of worms. Yeah, that'll put you off. But the other thing I wanted to say about Dead Reckoning is that you have to be totally accurate, especially as a human being, because human beings, if you're not calculating your speed correctly, your starting point, you need a fixed reference point to start from. It's like the compass. That's why you have the numbers on there. Magnetic north is your fixed point. Yeah. With Dead Reckoning, you need a starting point because, as we said before, distance equals rate times time. You need to be able to figure out exactly how much time has elapsed. It was hard to navigate with longitude without a chronometer because you don't know exactly how much time has elapsed. If you're not figuring that correctly, it's a cumulative effect. You'll be way off. However, I had read that inertial dead reckoning instruments nowadays are actually very accurate because you have a computer doing that for you. Right. So it's not forgetting stuff. It's not miscalculating. Its sense of time and speed is not displaced by human frailties. So it's a very effective means and sometimes the only means you have as a pilot or sailor. Yeah. It's a good point. And it's also why in the early days of sailing, kings offered great rewards for clocks that would keep time at sea on a rocking boat. And all kinds of crazy contraptions were invented with pendulums and weights. And, oh, yeah. Because well, if you didn't have the yeah. clock, you had a little bit more trouble figuring out. Oh, again, yes. Went. Navigating by longitude. So going, if you look at a globe going left to right or right to left laterally, that's much harder to do because that requires knowing exactly how much time has passed. And think about it, on a ship, you can't take a grandfather clock because it's rocking. So you need a chronometer that measures time no matter what the movement is. And there was a great prize put forth by a king that was, I think, the equivalent of $20 million at the time right. to come up with a, an accurate chronometer. And it took this guy 14 years or something, but he finally did it. So, yeah. Right. I okay. love that story, which we have no details on. No. But I do love okay. it. So for us, whenever we're discussing a mystery like this, whether it's Dyatlov Pass or Amelia Earhart or any other story where folks have gone missing, we feel it's really important to remember the people in these stories. Because the truth about any story like this is that it's about more than just the event. And when we document the names of these folks on Astonishing Legends, it eventually makes its way into our transcripts, which in turn get attached to our online record of these stories. And in that way, more than just telling the story, we're making an effort to continue to digitally preserve the names of the persons in them, because the memory of them is important, not only historically, but for many people, spiritually as well. So let's meet the squadron from Flight 19. 
First, we have Lieutenant Charles C.C. Taylor, 29 years old, which I was surprised. I don't know why I was surprised. You have to be young to be in the military. But when I found out that he was 29, it was after I had read the entire story. Yeah. To me, at my current age, it's like, wow, that's, He's that's a, a kid? Young, young guy. Yeah. <laughs> no, back then, young guy. people burned it out. I mean, you know, my grandfather was 19 when he went into World War II. Yeah. And again, my dad, and he owned a gas station. Yeah. <laughs> like, what was I doing at 19? Nothing. Right. So people got serious real quick. And they were a lot more responsible in a lot of ways. Yeah. But in a war, like this figures in, some people lied about their age just to go fight. One of these crew members did. We're going to find that out in yeah, a minute, actually. Exactly. That's, a, that's a good little tease. But anyway, Taylor was 29. He was the instructor for the flight. He had extensive combat experience from the war, including having ditched in the ocean three times. Avengers, I think all three times, but I'm not positive. But I know at least two of them. And he survived once without even getting his uniform wet. Yeah, well, that's quite a feat. Yeah, apparently when he was brought back to the ship to be rescued, his other crew member went up the ladder in front of him and some of the water dripped down on him. (laughs) And he said, dang, that was my last clean uniform. (laughs) This tells you a little bit about C.C. Taylor there. He was very calm. A lot of pilots and us average folks who don't do historic and heroic things, it's like Sully Sullenberger. Wow, he's calm and collected. It's like, yeah, you have to be for that job. Yeah. If you start shrieking and freaking out, that doesn't do anybody any good. So a lot of times this will come into play when we hear the radio chatter later. But if you go online to YouTube and you listen to these guys, even when they're under fire, yeah. they're calm and collected because you have to be. That's right. Otherwise, it's, it's pandemonium. Right. And that's yeah. kind of what Bruce was saying last week when his dad got kind of upset <laughs> about the... no no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You can't start swearing. What do you mean you don't know where we are? <laughs> but, what the hell is the matter with you? <laughs> what the, well, I understand. <laughs> that because yeah. in that regard, things are really not making sense. It's not that they're lost. They can figure that out. If they're yeah. pointing the wrong way, they can figure that out. But when the compass is spinning yeah. and the sky doesn't look right and you are now a long ways forward. And a woman rides by on a bicycle with a dog. <laughs> in the, in the midair. <laughs> that's when he started to lose it. But that's why Bruce took the mic away from his dad. It's like, okay, let's not get nuts now. I know things are strange. Yeah. And Bruce's point was that he's a young guy and he's like, I'll get through this. Yeah. So here's the young guy attitude with Lieutenant Taylor and that, all right, I'm off a little bit, but I'll figure this out. Don't I'll worry about it. it. Yeah. yeah. I ditched. I'm yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I need yeah. to get my other uniforms cleaned up. Yeah. All right. So there's five aircraft in Flight 19. Their call signs were FT-28, that was Lieutenant Taylor's plane, FT-36, FT-3, FT-117, and FT-81. The F in the call sign indicates that the aircraft is based in Fort Lauderdale. This is important. It's going to come up again, so keep your head wrapped around that. Had they been based out of Miami, 28 miles to the south on the east coast of Florida, their call signs would have started with MT instead of FT. The T and the call sign means the aircraft is a torpedo bomber. Yeah. Much like TBM means yeah, exactly. on the, on the right. Avenger. We're sure many of you know what torpedo bombers are, and we talked about it a little bit, but essentially they carry bombs that are designed to be dropped into the water and yeah. propel themselves into targets. Right. One large torpedo that they will drop, aiming it at a ship. And at this time, is, they did not yeah. have homing or tracking. So it no. was all about how you pointed the plane when you dropped it. Yeah, exactly. And as you can figure, though, a lot of them got shot down, especially at the Battle of Midway. So five of the six Avengers that were there got shot down and one only returning to the carrier. And didn't have any hits, I believe, either. Really? Yeah, yeah which would be a bad track record, but the Avengers wound up becoming a big deal. Because the one before, the Douglas TBD Devastator, 
actually performed not so well. So that was disastrous, even though it had some early victories. It didn't do so well. So the Avenger was meant to be a replacement for that. But think about it, when you're coming in low and slow over the water, or at least a level enough to try and drop a torpedo, you make an easy target. Right. And then, of course, nowadays, they're obsolete because we have anti-ship missiles that do the job for us. You know, right. we need to drop a torpedo. And also, during the Battle of Midway, those Mark 13 torpedoes were very unreliable. I think they scored zero hits. Yeah. So it's a combination of that, plus the way that the Devastator was operating and... That's what the, I was talking yeah. about, Midway, when I said there were zero hits. I thought you meant on the plane. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, no, I don't no. know it's, about that. They didn't do so well. But yeah, the, the Avenger became a standard go-to workhorse kind of plane for torpedo bombing, and it was only retired in the 1960s. Here's the other thing that's actually super fascinating about the Avenger. George H.W. Bush, or Bush 41, as we call him in the States. That's right. For being the 41st president, actually flew an Avenger off the USS San Jacinto in 1944 and famously had to bail out of it and ditch it after a bombing run in Chichijima, about 400 miles south-southeast of Japan, after flak damaged the engine, setting it ablaze, according to him. And this was just a year before Flight 19 vanished. Now, he was fortunate to be rescued by the USS Finback submarine, which was, I guess, was a rescue submarine. Yes. After four hours in the water under the guard of other circling airplanes, fortunately, no circling sharks. He was very lucky, though. Another member of his crew died when his chute didn't open. And I think a couple... Bailing out of the plane. Bailing out. And I think a couple of guys went down inside the plane. They usually have three guys on board. I couldn't figure out if Bush 41 had three or four. It was either two guys or the three, because there is a gunner, there's a radio operator, and the pilot who acts also as the navigator. Yeah, but when you read about the Bush incident, it seems like there might have been two inside and two definitely bailed out. So that's why I thought maybe there was an extra Yeah, no, all we know is that the other guy, his chute didn't open, so he didn't survive. And George H.W. Bush was the lone survivor in the raft that got picked up. Yes, and it's a good thing that he did live, because several other members of his squadron were were taken prisoner. This is a brief tangent, but we thought it was significant. They were taken prisoner, tortured, executed, some by beheading, and some of them were even partially eaten by their Japanese captors. Well, the livers. Yeah, the livers. Yeah. Uh, what What does it matter if you're being eaten? Okay. Uh, oh, it's just the liver. <laughs> but um, th- th- and those captors were later executed themselves yeah. for war crimes. Bush 41, now a decorated pilot, actually became a flight instructor in Norfolk. Virginia, which is pretty much the exact same gig Lieutenant Taylor had. Exactly. So that's why it's significant and relevant here is that he had the same job as Lieutenant Charles Taylor because of his combat experience. And that's something you can't teach during peacetime is that combat experience by a hardened veteran. Yes. He's seen the Avenger under all different kinds of situations, especially combat ones. I'm not exactly sure how many combat missions Taylor flew, but I do know that Bush 41 flew somewhere in the over 50 combat missions. Yeah, and he was fairly well decorated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when Flight 19 happened, World War II had only been over by about three months, right? I know. I was thinking about that myself and how the Grumman TBM Avengers they were flying had only been in service since the beginning of 1942, so a little over three years old. It just blows my mind how fast things were developed and produced for World War II. World War II is actually one of our favorite history topics, and we're so lucky nowadays that we can learn all about it or exoplanets or myths about the brain just by watching The Great Courses Plus on any one of our mobile devices, which would have blown everyone's mind back in the 40s. (laughs) And here's a cool new way to use your mobile device to try out The Great Courses Plus with a free one-month trial. To get unlimited access to over 8,000 video lectures, just text the word LEGENDS to 86329. 
and you'll receive a link to sign up so you can start watching immediately, right from your mobile device, laptop, or TV. So Scott and I have been watching a fascinating lecture called The Black Death, the world's most devastating plague. And we just learned about its epidemiology. And we also just like saying the word epidemiology. Okay, so tell everyone how they think the plague is transmitted. Epidemiology. <laughs> See, no, I wait. told you. <laughs> Let's get more specific. In 1898, a scientist named Paul Louis Simond argued that the disease is transmitted to humans when a flea jumps from a rat to a human being and bites them. But just because a flea is infected with plague doesn't mean it's infective. The way that a flea becomes infective is because of its digestive system. A flea's stomach is called a ventriculus, which also has a proventriculus, and this proventriculus acts like a valve leading to the flea's stomach. But when a flea feeds on a plague-infected rodent, the flea doesn't get as much nourishment as if it were feeding on a non-infected rodent. Because this proventriculus becomes clogged with blood and plague bacteria. Mm. So now you got a very hungry flea who starts biting more aggressively and frequently in order to get some nourishment. And the theory is that when the host rats die, isn't this great? The starving <laughs> fleas who are more prone to bite rodents search out other hosts that they would not normally feed on. In this case, humans. The fleas bite, the proventriculus regurgitates the plague bacteria into the wound and the human becomes infected with plague. Uh, good gravy, nature is diabolical. I love it when science and history are both fascinating and disgusting. So in a way, a flea's stomach valve changed the course of Western history, while mine just gives me acid reflux. Yeah, I guess you could think of it that way, although I'd rather not. I'd, I'd also <laughs> rather not use the term good gravy while we're talking about the plague. Uh, well, how about, uh, that was a mouthful, Scott. <laughs> mm. Gross. Well, if this stuff is as interesting to you as it is to us, use your mobile device or message app right now to text the word LEGENDS to the number 86 329. And you'll get a link to sample as many courses as you want for a whole month for free. We think you'll be hooked from the very first lecture. To get the reply text, standard message and data rates apply. Okay, so one last time. Text L-E-G-E-N-D-S to the number 86329 to receive this free month offer for the Great Courses Plus. Hello. I'm Stephen Terrell, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Are all the lights on now? Awesome. And back to the show. All right, so we got five planes in Flight 19, which means we got five pilots. Number one, Lieutenant Taylor, the leader, the instructor in FT-28. Number two, Captain E.J. Powers in FT-36. Number three, Ensign Joseph Bossy in FT-3. Conversation between him and... And Taylor, they think, was the very last thing heard from Flight 19 before they disappeared. Right. Number four, Captain George Stivers or Stivers? I would say Stivers. Stivers. Yeah. He was in FT-117. And number five, Second Lieutenant Forrest Gerber <laughs> yeah. in FT-81. Okay. Now, each Avenger, as we said a minute ago, was supposed to have three crew members, the pilot, a gunner, and a radio man. But Gerber's plane was one man short, which is why Flight 19 had 14 men and not 15. After the five pilots, the other crew members were Robert Francis Harmon, a.k.a. George Francis Devlin, aviation ordnance man third class. Now, I love this guy. Harmon was actually a made-up name. He enlisted under a false name because it's something that you alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. He was underage, and he wanted to be in the Navy. These are people in a time when they say greatest generation— 
they're not shirking their duties. They're yeah. like, you know what? I want to get in the worst way possible and help out. Yeah. They were enlisting or even trying to enlist underage. And a few cases here and there, they squeaked in. It's interesting you say that because this struck a chord with me because my great-grandfather did the exact same thing. Yeah. I can't remember the branch of the military, but he tried to join up. He lied about his age. And I think he actually went a couple of weeks before he got found out and booted out. And <laughs> then he ran off to join the circus. <laughs> the I am not bit. kidding. He actually <laughs> ran off to join the circus. Yeah. And later in life, he became fire chief for Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, that's right. I'm going to give him a shout out. Yeah. Uh, James Atlas Poole. He is uh, long dead and gone, but he was a great man. He always gave me a 20 and a Coca-Cola whenever I went to visit him. Oh, very nice. Yeah. yeah. Amazing dude. The point is, it was, as you said, a different generation. Now, Jim Poole was about 20 years older than Devlin, but it's that same spirit of adventure, I suppose. And, and we discussed it also with the Albert Osman Kidnapped by Bigfoot episode. People were cut from a different cloth back then. Yeah, they're not the uh, bunch of whiners. I'm making my eight-year-old go and get the mail. So. Yeah, because you're <laughs> you're all tuckered out. Personality-wise, there were a lot of people that were much different. And nowadays, maybe it's the extreme sports guys where they're just looking for adventure. They get out. We certainly have a lot of people, uh, fine folks in the armed services here doing a great service for us yes. as, a, as a country. We have many that listen to the show, actually. And right. hello, and thank you for yes, thank reaching you. out to us. Exactly, we're exactly. glad to keep you entertained, especially in foreign theaters. <laughs> and, yes, and that's a theater, theaters. not a movie theater. It's a yes. theater of operation. Exactly. You guys get that right. This yeah. Military talk. You get a certain attitude, especially when you're younger, and Bruce Gurnan and Electronic Fog alluded to it, when you're, you're kind of younger and you've been through battle. I certainly saw it with my grandfather in that you'd seen everything. You'd stared in the face of death. You'd seen people being blown apart, your best friends there. And so once you get away from that, everything else is gravy. Making another gravy illusion here. Yeah. And but my point this is, is a that, much better use of gravy. Yes, yeah, so, no, but <laughs> the point is you have a lot of the behavior that we'll be examining about Charles Taylor and how he behaved that day and what his decisions were may be based a little bit on him being a combat veteran and having gone through World War II. So think about that when we go to describe the events that happened. Right. Moving on past Robert Francis Harmon, or George Francis Devlin being his real name, we go to the other seven members after the five pilots and Devlin. Walter Parpart, he was aviation radio man third class. Hal Thompson, staff sergeant, United States Marine Corps. George Ponessa, sergeant, U.S. Marine Corps. Herman Thielander, seaman first class, U.S. Naval Reserve. Bert Ballack, Seaman First Class, U.S. Naval Reserve. Robert Grubel, Private, United States Marine Corps Reserve. Robert Gallivan, Sergeant, United States Marine Corps. And William Lightfoot, Private First Class, United States Marine Corps Reserve. So all these guys were on this flight, and one of them was even underaged, which breaks my heart a little bit. Well, Guess theoretically he knew what he was getting and into. And he wanted to be there. He wanted to be there. So these guys take off to conquer navigation problem number one. So let's get more specific about that. As we said earlier, you fly pretty much due east on a bearing, so we're coming back to our bearings now, of 091 degrees. 090 would be exactly due east, or 3 o'clock on your clock if 12 o'clock's at north. So 091 degrees from the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale towards Hen and Chickens Island, or Rocks or Shoal, or whatever you want to call it, as we mentioned earlier. That trip from Fort Lauderdale to Hen and Chickens is about 56 nautical miles. This is leg one of navigation problem number one. They circle and bomb Hen and Chickens for about 20 minutes. Then they continue on the same heading for 67 more nautical miles. This technically 
is leg two, even though we're still going on a straight line. So don't think of a leg as necessarily having a turn in it. Leg one is up until they do the bombing practice. Leg two is after the bombing practice, but they haven't made any major turns yet, aside from circling to bomb, probably. No, and if you look at it on the map, which we will have a diagram of, you will see that it's basically a triangle pattern. You're going to hit these three points, come on back to the naval station once you've done these navigational tasks. That's right. So after the bombing practice, they go out to Great Stirrup K. A K is not an island, but a low reef just under the water. It can be sand, rock, coral, whatever. It's not an island. Apparently, like Pluto isn't a planet. <laughs> I think that, that has to do with size. But yeah, it's a lot of more coral, especially in this area. So it's an outcropping. Yeah, it's piece just of under solid, the water. Yeah, right. But it's visible by air, and it makes a great target. Wow. Visual target, yes. yes. Right. So at Great Stirrup K, they turn left, or north-northwest to a heading 346 degrees and fly 73 nautical miles. This is now leg three of navigation problem number one. During leg three, you're flying north. Florida is off to your left or port side, but it's out of sight over the horizon, as are most things when you're this far out at sea. And at their altitude, they can probably see about 38 or 40 miles to the horizon because altitude for these training missions was generally between 700 and 1,000 feet. So not very high, really. To drop a torpedo, you need to be lower. Yes. Uh, so it doesn't make any sense to be at a very high altitude to spend a lot of time coming down to a very low altitude to drop your torpedo. That's right. And in addition to that, when we said you could see about 38 or 40 miles to the horizon, that's in perfect visibility. Yes. That doesn't take into account weather, clouds, haze, that sort of thing. No, and, and I think at the time, you're also blocked by the curvature of the Earth, not only by vision, but also radio signal. That's right. If somebody's below the horizon, you need to send a plane up higher to get the signal out to them. So leg three is actually supposed to take you over Grand Bahama Island, which is kind of a big one and hard to miss. Not actually thinking about the Bahamas as a group of islands itself. This is its own separate kind of a larger island that's more directly east of the east coast of Florida. Yes. Just to make that clear, I think a lot of people confuse Grand Bahama with what is considered the chunk of islands called the Bahamas, but part of the same grouping. Right. So after you cross over the Grand Bahama Island, you get to Great Sail K. That's Sail, S-A-L-E. Well, I don't know, maybe somebody... A good, a good sail there. Yeah, yeah. or yeah. somebody bought it cheap. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, these Ks can be thought of as landmarks, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, but in theory, if you've done all your calculations correctly, you don't need to see them to know where to turn because we are supposed to be doing dead reckoning. It's supposed to be about when you turn, right. what your heading is in degrees, how long you flew in that direction, at what speed, yeah. and depending on what the wind is doing. This exercise is about trusting the math and doing it correctly and taking accurate measurements because as a pilot, and maybe as a sailor as well, a visual representation or targeting method is secondary. You really want to trust your instruments. I always hear uh, military pilots say that. Trust your instruments because you can get mixed up in the air. Yeah. And that's JFK Jr. Oh, yeah. who wasn't instrument rated. So in a deep fog, you think you're flying level. Next thing you know, you're hitting the water. And not only that, you're in a death spiral where you're circling and you don't realize it. Yeah. And descending, circling and descending. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if it was proven in the investigation, but there was some theory that JFK Jr. may have even been completely inverted when he hit the water. It's possible. So yeah. the point here is that you don't know your sense of feeling of up and down. And, you know, especially if you're flying, you know, you get that pit of your stomach feeling or when the elevator drops. But that is not accurate. So the idea here is that trust your calculations, take good measurements, trust the math, and not rely on your visual targeting to make a direction. However, if you're out of the other two elements, or the map, the compass, the time, then a visual sighting is all you got to go on. And we're about to find out here where sometimes a visual sighting is maybe not your best friend. 
So you're now at Great Sale K, where you begin leg four by turning to heading 241 degrees or slightly west-southwest. You're completing the third side of the, not quite of a right triangle pattern, and heading back home to the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale, which is about 120 nautical miles away. And even though it's leg four, this is still only a three-sided navigational pattern. I'm reminding you that the first side had the bombing practice in the middle of it, so it was broken into two legs, even though it was a straight line. So this is the third side of the triangle, but the fourth leg of the exercise navigation problem, number one. You could think about it this way, as far as the first leg and that being confusing, is that once you get to the K, they're not all flying in a single line pattern, all dropping bombs one after the other. I'm sure they're circling, they're coming in low, they're doing their angle of attack. So once they get to Hen and Chicken Shoals, they're taking their bomb turns and, yes. and probably circling and doing their exercises for 20 minutes. Don't think about it as, yeah, one, two, three, four, they all drop their torpedoes and keep going in a straight line. Yeah. So that's easier to think about as a separate part of the leg, is that they're doing their exercises for 20 minutes. And then they fall back in. Fall back in. Good point. So in theory, you complete this last leg, you wind up back at the Naval Air Station at Fort Lauderdale, you land, you debrief, and you're done with your exercise. The only problem is Flight 19 never made it to leg four. They never made that second turn on the triangle. Right. So the question is why? One of the things that is definitely going to come into play is the fact that there was a 31-knot crosswind blowing out of the southwest or essentially out to sea. And dead reckoning gets to be a whole hassle when you factor the wind in. And if it's a 31-knot tailwind and it's directly behind you at your six, as Forrest would say, then you know that your plane, relative to the ground, will be going 31 knots faster. So if you're going 100 knots and you have a 31-knot tailwind, you're now going 131 knots because this wind is pushing you. This is why, if you fly across the country in the U.S. anyway, it takes less time to fly from California to the East Coast than it does the other way around because the jet stream is always blowing from west to east. And last time I flew, when I flew to New York for the meetup just recently, it was like four and a half hours. And when I came back, it was six hours. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You're fighting the headwind. And here's the important thing. The longer you fly, the more difference it makes in your time and distance. You burn more fuel. Exactly. It's like being on the treadmill. Suddenly now it's 0.2 or 3, you know, elevation. If you've ever been on a treadmill, you know that makes it slightly harder and you burn more energy doing that. Right. So the important part here to think about is that if it's blowing out your side, you're now going left or right. And the longer you keep doing that, the more off course you're going to be. So you need to calculate for that as well. Right. And there's some reason to believe that that's part of what went wrong here. Because after they finished the bombing run and they flew to Great Stirrup K, and then they turned north-northwest to head for Great Sail K and theoretically fly over Grand Bahama Island, the... Wind, which had been blowing out of the southwest at 31 knots and had been more or less behind them, not perfectly behind them, but helping them along, was now pretty much directly off their port side or their left side. Yeah. And the problem here is that the plane is trying to fly and there's this really strong wind blowing it sideways. So it affects all your calculations. It affects where you're going to arrive. On the upside of this, they knew what the wind was going to be doing before they went out, and they plotted their course accordingly. They knew that there was a 31-knot wind at 1,000 feet, and that's why it's important what your altitude is because the wind changes depending on the height, and the calculations on the wind were based on the altitude. So in theory, they should have already had the proper calculations, and clearly Flight 18 did because Flight 18 made it to Great Sail K and returned to Fort Lauderdale, but Flight 19 did not. The other thing that's happening is, as Forrest said earlier, the instructor, Lieutenant Taylor, is letting the students take turns leading the formation. 
in addition to leading the formation, they are also dealing now with this crosswind at their sides. It's blowing them very, very hard. And the Avenger is a very difficult plane to fly. In fact, there was a joke that all the Avenger pilots had huge right arms and smaller left arms because the controls were so hard to handle on the right-hand side. So with the wind blowing at the side and a student trying to figure out where they're going and barely being able to control the plane and possibly also adjusting for deviations in course brought about by the wind if the math wasn't right before they left, you can understand how they may have gotten off course. And essentially that is what happened because they went up to where they were supposed to go and they never saw Grand Bahama Island. They missed it. Oh, and another salient point is that they were in formation, which takes huge amounts of concentration with no crosswind. So to keep you from bumping into each other. Yeah, no, which is disastrous. So keep in mind, there's several complicated things going on here, which could mean success or disaster. Yeah. So it's nerve-wracking at best anyway. Yeah, that's true. And navigation problem number one is a piece of cake to Taylor. He had flown in combat. There's reason to believe he may not have even had a map or his plotting board on board his Avenger. However, I will point out that this is the first time he had flown this particular navigation problem. But this thing is a walk in the park for him. So let's talk a little bit about what a plotting board is. It's different from a map. This is what you use to calculate your angles, your bearings, where you're going to turn, what the wind is doing, how that's going to affect where you are after a certain amount of time. In the Avenger, it pulled out from under the dashboard. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of eyewitnesses who suggested that he did not have one on board his plane. But then again, he was not the one that really needed to be doing the plotting. The students needed to be. Right. There was also rumor that he didn't even have a watch on. Well, uh, that's a bigger deal in a lot of ways. Yeah, especially because it was reported that they did a full pre-flight check on all these planes. And I don't know why, I didn't read that part, and maybe you know, there didn't seem to be any clocks aboard these planes. Now, that wasn't a worry because it's always assumed that a pilot will have a good chronometer wristwatch on them. Yeah. Because you need a backup. These things, you know, instruments fail. So that's very important, though, if there are no working clocks on these planes, and he doesn't even have a watch on himself. That's right. And Larry Cush said that in his research, he found that there was a watch in his effects after he went missing. But that doesn't mean he didn't have two watches. That's true. But yeah. th- th- there were, in his locker. Yeah, yeah there was yeah, a watch there. Yeah, right. but there are people that said, well, I, I don't even know if he had a watch on yeah. his flight, uh, Lieutenant Taylor, that is. So the question is, when they made the turn for leg three to head north-northwest, and if Taylor's letting one of the students lead, there's a question as to how much attention is he paying to what's going on, which this will come up later in theories, but a little bit about whether or not maybe he was checked out. I'm not casting aspersions on his character. I'm just saying maybe just plain bored, no pun intended. But. Right. Well, you know, again, they're not that far off the coast of Florida. I mean, there are ways out, so they can't see the coastline. And yeah. it's supposed to be far enough out to get you to be in, in conditions which you might find in combat to drop bombs at a location out in the middle of the ocean on a carrier or something else, a destroyer, whatever it is. But you're not too far off the coast that now it's dangerous. No, and it's also important to remember that they're only at 1,000 feet. They're at a low altitude, and you can see way less into the distance at that low altitude. And on top of that, there was haze reported over and around Grand Bahama Island that day. So if they weren't right on top of it or they were making a mistake, they were going to have a hard time seeing it. So when they go to take this last turn at leg four, things don't look right out the window. And then that's when this is heard over the radio. I'm overland, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down. And I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. 
Right. So that's one of the biggest mysteries of this case, which Forrest yeah. and I have talked about extensively before we sat down to record. Why did Lieutenant Taylor, the leader of Flight 19, believe that they were all the way in the Florida Keys? Picturing this, they're now not off the right side. If you're looking at Florida straight down on a map, they're supposed to be on the right side of the peninsula state there. And now he believes they're at the south end of the state. Yeah, south and west of it. Yeah, major off-course route here. Yeah, because Fort Lauderdale is about six-sevenths of the way down the east coast of Florida, and Miami's about 30 miles further south of there. So how in the world could he be so disoriented? And we're going to come back to that, but it's a major sticking point for us, and there's many theories about it. We're going to touch briefly on a few of those now, but we're going to save the in-depth for our theories discussion in the later parts of this series. All right, do you remember, and I'm sure the answer is no, Ah, but but when he first spoke with Lieutenant Cox that we played earlier, he was trying to help him figure out where he was. Taylor said his call sign was MT-28. MT. Yeah. M is Miami. He had flown out of Fort Lauderdale. So that's an indication of confusion there. Well, it could be confusion or just habit because he had recently arrived from Naval Air Station Miami where he was also a torpedo bomber instructor. That's right. So it was recent. Yeah. So he might have just been thinking force of habit. He just has the wrong call sign. That's right. He'd only been flying out of Fort Lauderdale for two weeks, and this was also his first time flying navigation problem number one. So here's another point to keep in mind. He knows Southern Florida very well, the Miami area, and the Keys. That's right. He's been flying over them quite a bit. He did submarine patrol over the Keys for a long time, so he was used to flying over the Keys. That's going to come up later, but those were very familiar. What they looked like below to him was a very familiar thing. Now, Bruce Gernon and Robert McGregor posited in their book, Electronic Fog, which again is the basis of our last episode and our interview with Bruce, that perhaps Flight 19 encountered a storm similar to what he had flown through, which we mentioned earlier in the show. And you might remember from that that Bruce's passenger, Chuck Lafayette, in 1970, got disoriented and was speaking in word salad. Now, now, (laughs) Mm. Flight 19 did fly exactly through the northern part of where Bruce's storm was in 1970, but again, it was 25 years earlier. However, remember there's another important thing that Lieutenant Taylor said. This is MT-28. Both my compasses are out. This was a simple mission for Taylor. The question I have, I guess, is was he phoning it in? You know, and and I'm not trying to speak ill of him, but some who would cast aspersions on his character suggested that he might have been hungover or simply tired. There was apparently a lot of late-night poker games, Uh and they were living in Miami, and they had shared apartments, which they called snake pits or something like that. I can't remember what that was, (laughs) but there was a lot of partying going on. You know, that means something. However, Lieutenant Taylor was not considered a heavy drinker and also not a life-of-the-party kind of guy. I mean, he would go and do things. He definitely apparently liked the ladies, but he wasn't, you know, an Animal House kind of party monster. No, look, to be an instructor, you have to keep it together some. Yeah. Now, we talked about this before in the character of this guy and why he did the things he did on this mission, on this training mission. And maybe some of the reasons. And we got around to talking about older folks that we know, guys that were in World War II. Now, I, I always refer to my grandfather in this, but he did things so often and he'd been through so much that maybe, you know, when he was older and I was a kid growing up, he did things that seemed careless. Yeah. <laughs> like, he was chief of fuels at an Air Force base as a civilian employee, but he was chief of fuels, yeah. okay, aircraft fuels, 
but I would often see him working on the carburetor of the car. He's with a cigarette dangling out of his mouth. It's like, hey, Grandpa, there's gas. That's yeah, fine. Because <laughs> he knew what he was doing. He's not poking it into the fuel, but obviously for everybody else, not a good idea. Yeah. Again, he knew so much about so many things, especially with uh, mechanics and cars and, and fuels, that he was very comfortable, but that's usually where your professional makes a mistake. Not only that, he was a car freak too. In fact, his car that he drove around when he was macking out in Miami, yeah. it was a 1938 Buick Phaeton and right. a convertible. This yeah. car is amazing yeah. looking. We did <laughs> yeah. the arc, dug it up. We're going to include it in the photos. He had right. a bright red one. Nice. Now, I don't know if he really knew how to work on them or anything, but if you're driving that around, he did say that one time he was late somewhere because the wheel came off of it, <laughs> according <laughs> oh, to Larry Cush's book. Yeah. It seemed like something that he would know about. But with regard to his character, again, I did want to say this. There was an eyewitness who he met face-to-face with in the ready room yeah. before he went up on Flight 19 and stood like right across from him, had a conversation, and this guy was like, I knew him. In fact, I didn't necessarily care for some parts of his personality, but I can tell you I knew him when he was sober and I knew when he was drunk, and he was not drunk and he did not appear to be hungover or have any other issues. Now, there was another story that he requested to be dismissed from the flight and have somebody else stand in. There's a couple of things about this that are important to understand. One is, these guys were jockeying all over the place. These things are coming and going every few minutes. There's a billion flights. People are changing positions. People aren't going. In fact, right. one plane was one man short just because the guy didn't feel like going up that day. It's like, look, it's like people getting on uh, for a roller coaster ride. It's like, well, we're going up. Are these cars not full? Okay, we'll space them out so it's uh, the weight's even and they go anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's not unusual to request to get off. But also, if you have a serious problem, including to your point of being an instructor, yeah. that you think is an issue, you can request to be grounded. You fill out a couple of forms. You say, look, I can't go up. Right. It's not safe. Yes, I drank too much last night. And as a responsible leader, that's probably what you would do. It's not necessarily going to reflect bad on your record unless you're doing it every day. So Exactly. Now, I didn't see this in your notes, but I thought it'd be fun to bring up here is that some of the authors who have written books about this flight and the Bermuda Triangle in general, because this is considered one of the major corners of the Bermuda Triangle, Yeah. that one of the airmen on this training mission requested not to go. And I don't know if it's Taylor but requested not to go because they had a premonition that something bad yeah, was going to happen. That's, no, I was kidding. the reason I bring I that up. I know the that, root of that story. That's part of the major lore around this yes. mystery, and it is still a mystery, no matter what happens. It is still a mystery, in my view. But you'll hear that brought up as like because it adds to the mystery. Well, part of the reason that was brought up, just so you know, yeah. and we do want to talk about the folkloric parts of this story, sure. and yeah, we yeah. will be doing that later in the series. But the reason that that particular story is prominent is because it was something that his mom and aunt posited Yeah, that when they found out that he had re- possibly requested to be taken off the mission, they were like, oh, he must have had a vision. Because they were prone to believe in that kind of thing. And it got yeah. baked into a very long protracted battle that they had with the Navy after this incident right. in an investigation to determine what had happened, where they got particularly mad at the Navy for reasons which you're going to find out about in the future. But the long and short of it is that is where that came from. And I can also tell you that with regard to the person in the ready room who had heard him say that he wanted to be dismissed, it was later determined that it was entirely possible that was a man who was leading another flight who actually had the flu or something. Uh, So they don't even know if that was Taylor. Yeah. So we don't even know if that's a factor, but it's something to consider and and we'll get more in depth on it later. But for now, that's kind of the brief overview of all that. So the bottom line is, at this point, a series of decisions have been made by all parties involved that are going to take this story from one that might never have even been noticed if they'd have found them and they'd made it home to one that's going to live on forever. 
Okay, so now that we've established how disoriented they seem to be, or Taylor seems to be at least, we can start to piece together what happened next from sporadic radio communications that they had with various bases and other aircraft. So I'm going to call this section the conversations. <laughs> Do we have a, uh, didn't we try a section of that in some previous episode? Uh, no, we actually did a special on Patreon that we called the conversations. That's right. right uh, we, I forgot. We need yeah. to maybe do another one. Oh, anyway, yeah. so here we go with some of the radio conversation that will tell you a lot about where things are at. This is a conversation between the Port Everglades base and Lieutenant Taylor. FT-28, this is Port Everglades radio check. Can you read us? Affirmative. We have just passed over a small island. I have no other land in sight. And at altitude 3,500 feet, have on emergency IFF. Does anyone in the area have a radar screen that can pick us up? Roger. Stand by. So here's the problem here. They went to see if they had radar, but they didn't. There was no radar equipment that could find them because it had been there. But this is now three months after World War II, and I guess they wasted no time in dismantling all the far-reaching <laughs> radar installations that were on the coast. Well, it's hard to say. Well, that I was... mean, that's what Larry said, though. He yeah. said they took it apart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, my point is that that was still a relatively new technology. Yeah. Not that they were kind of baffled and shut it off. You just never know. I mean, you know. Well, I think they're just trying to save money. They could be. shut it down with the personnel. Because there's another rumor, and this may have been put forth by Lieutenant Taylor's mom or aunt, who both vigorously pursued an investigation. But there were these thoughts that because of the war being over for three months, that all the high-ranking officers and people who operated this gear were discharged, and the guys that got left behind were less experienced. Yeah, that could very well be, because you have a lot of these guys who are combat veterans get riffed out, which is reduction in force. They cycle out, they end their tour, and then what you have left are the guys maybe who just started who don't have as much experience with this. But yeah, as far as radar goes, I think it was breaking down a lot. Like I said, that's what I meant by like new technology. Oh, right. Is so that keeping it going, keeping it all going, that kind of stuff. You need a, you need it's a an tech. expense. Yeah. I knew a guy that was, he was actually a radar tech for the Air Force. He worked with my dad and they flew him all over because there weren't a lot of these guys around. So he would go to Alaska, he'd go to Florida, he'd go all over the place to go fix the radar receivers. Now, one thing I wanted to explain here, when he says IFF, that stands for identification friend or foe, yes. which is a transponder beacon on the plane because this resulted from a lot of friendly fire incidents at the beginning of the war. So what it is is that he can flick that on as an emergency and then that allows him to be identified by an airbase station as friendly aircraft so they don't shoot them down. If they're close enough, which was the problem here. Yeah if, yeah, if they're close enough. And the other thing is that if it's a foe aircraft, enemy aircraft, they're not going to know. That doesn't give them, because of course they're not going to turn on any kind of beacon. But foe. I'm a foe. <laughs> I'm coming, just coming at you like just, Cleopatra. <laughs> just letting you know. So you get a head start. But the base station receiving the signal should pick it up if he's within range. And that's what he means IFF. So yeah. I just want to explain that. No, that's yeah. a good point. And the other thing we wanted to explain, and this is something that Larry pointed out, in his book, The Disappearance of Flight 19. Roger does not mean I'm following what you said. Roger means I heard what you said and I understood it. Yeah, it's not exactly like he's saying Wilco. Now, I believe with that term, no one's really sure of its origin, but it's generally believed to mean will comply. It's a right. shortened will comply. So mm-hmm. you say, Roger, Wilco. So I'll, that means I heard you, I understood you. I will comply with those instructions. Right. This is just Roger, which means I heard you and yeah. I understood you. Not necessarily I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do not, what you're asking. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to do this. So in this case, when Port Everglades 
says, Roger, stand by. They're saying, I understand you. Basically, we're going to look into this and see if there's a radar installation that can see you. It turned out there wasn't, and I guess they communicated that back. And Port Everglades eventually responded. We suggest you have another plane in your flight with a good compass take over the lead and guide you back. To which Taylor replied, Roger. (laughs) Well, they may not have had a good compass. This is another point of mystery for me that I've been grilling Scott about. And he has pretty good explanations, which we'll get into in the theories section. But I always wondered about whose compass is working here? And why is it not working if it isn't? It's a good question, because we know that at the outset, Lieutenant Taylor, the leader of Flight 19, said, both my compasses are out. They're not working. Yeah. Now, he did not say any much beyond that. And in the later ensuing conversations, there was not much other discussion of the compasses except for one point where it seemed to be overheard that Taylor was asking one of the men in the flight what his compass said. Right. And I do believe there was some chatter from one of these other pilots, one of the student pilots, that they didn't also know their heading or direction. Yeah. And those conversations were cutting in and out, and there was a lot of interference, and part of them was picked up by one guy, and and some was picked up by the other. And there was also information that was discovered during the course of the day that could have helped other branches of the search and rescue operations. However, they didn't get it till the next morning. Right. So there's that whole thing, and we'll, yeah. we'll talk more about that. So at 4.45 p.m., they hear from Taylor again. We are heading 030 degrees for 45 minutes. Then we will fly north to make sure we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. All right, so this tells us the situation's getting worse, keeping in mind that they flew the first few legs of navigation problem number one successfully, but now Taylor seems convinced that he's somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And that's a real big question. Why? Well, he's on the other side of Florida, the peninsula. Right, this is the bigger problem with this, is if you're south of Florida or southwest of it in the Gulf of Mexico, which way do you fly to get reoriented? You do what Lieutenant Cox said early on. Put the sun on your port wing if you were in the Keys and fly up the coast until you get to Miami. I think the only problem with that, though, is if you're pointed south now, the sun, west, will be on your starboard side. Yeah. I'm already kind of mixed up in my well, head. Well, yeah. but he wasn't necessarily pointed south. He no. seemed to be traveling mostly north and east. Right. If he's traveling north and the sun is on the port side for him and left of him, and he thinks he's in the Gulf and heading towards the western coast of Florida or northwestern Florida, like the Tallahassee area, and he's got the sun on his left side, and he thinks all is hunky-dory, but if he's out in the middle of the Atlantic and heading to the north or to the northeast trying to find Florida, it's not there. Right, right. Yeah. And keep in mind, it's late in the day during the winter, so the sun is very low in the sky at this point. So it's not like it's high noon, sun's directly overhead. That's a confusing factor. He should be able to orient himself, but for some reason, he's not able to. Yeah, and here's the other thing. Based on where we more or less think he was, and we do get some specific information, which we're going to talk about here in a second, but based on more or less where we think he was at this time, if he had flown due north, he probably would have hit North Carolina and about 400 nautical miles, way on the Outer Banks, maybe. Yeah. The range of the Avenger was 1,000 statute miles, and they probably had already flown about 300. Now, if he was in the Gulf of Mexico, as we mentioned earlier, with Florida to the northeast, and he flies northeast from where we think they were, north of Grand Bahama, he'd hit Dingle, Ireland in 3,241 nautical miles. That would be the first thing he would come to, more or less, in a direct flight. The only problem is he would have run out of gas 2,441 nautical (laughs) miles short. 
However, if he'd have climbed a little bit higher, he might have been able to wave at our friend Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime Podcast as he passed by Nova Scotia. Actually, I guess it would have been <laughs> Jordan's parents. Actually, wait, you would have run out of gas way off the coast of North Carolina. Sorry, yep. Jordan, or sorry yeah. to your, your parents there. Talk about wrong way Corrigan. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Lieutenant Commander Poole, who was in Fort Lauderdale, heard the following conversation between two students in Flight 19. If we would just fly west, we would get home. Damn it, if we would just fly west, we would get home. And then after that, Taylor made a course change. Change course to zero nine zero degrees for 10 minutes. He apparently went on to say after this, we are going too damn far north instead of east. If there's anything, we wouldn't see it. This belies how confused he still is. Then Port Everglades heard them say they were now going west again. They are essentially hopelessly lost. A different officer at Port Everglades then heard the following. Join up and continue in formation. If any one plane has to ditch, we all ditch together. All right, so this kind of thing went on for a while, faint messages coming in to a few various locations, and they were getting fainter and fainter. And one of the things that Lieutenant Cox had noted early on as he was flying south to try and find them in the Keys, because that was the first thing that Lieutenant Taylor said was, I'm in the Keys, I'm pretty sure I'm in the Keys, don't come after me, was that the closer he got to the Keys, the fainter the signals got from Taylor, which makes it pretty clear that he's not getting closer to Taylor but going further away from him. That's one thing that said kind of early on to Lieutenant Cox, they're not in the Keys. They're yeah. behind me. Right. That's an issue there. Now, there was some debate about sending a ready search and rescue aircraft out from Port Everglades, but the plane was held after a series of decisions that are still haunting people to this day. And we're going to discuss that more later in the series. But a ready aircraft is one that can be launched in a matter of moments. And they had one that they were planning to send out to try and find Flight 19. But the problem was, this was uh, Lieutenant Commander Poole. I know his last name was Poole, same as my great-grandfather, James Atlas Poole. Can't remember his rank, but he didn't want to send that plane out because they weren't sure where to send it. They were like, we don't know where they are. And this yeah. is just kind of like flying blind. And then they waited and waited and waited, and then bad weather started moving in, and then it never got off the ground. And that is one of the biggest holes in the investigation in terms of possible negligence. I wouldn't yeah. say incompetence. There was a lot going on. But, you know, you got to read the 500-page report, and that's for people besides us. But mm. <laughs> we, yeah. we have uh, looked at segments of it. So the calls kept coming in from Flight 19. They heard Taylor saying they were going east. Then he said they were going west again, and they were talking over and over about how they hadn't gone far enough either way to reach land. And their fuel all along was becoming depleted. When the first man gets down to 10 gallons of gas, we will all land in the water together. Does everyone understand that? So their situation is pretty well hopeless, to quote, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm. And more hopeless than most people could have imagined. So now we're going to talk a little bit about how the search got started, and that's going to wrap us up for tonight. There were more transmissions between Flight 19. There were transmissions heard between Taylor and his students. In fact, one of the last things heard was a conversation that sounded like it was between Rossi, who was a pilot of another plane. Right and Taylor, possibly. But whenever they tried to communicate to either one of them, they never acknowledged that they could hear it. So the search operation is really trying to get figured out what they need to do and how to get launched as soon as possible. One of the first things they did was deploy two planes known as Dumbos 
out from seaplane bases. Now, the interesting thing about these planes is Dumbo is named that after the movie Dumbo, the Disney movie. Right, which came out in 1941. Right, just a few years (laughs) earlier. And for those of you that haven't seen it, it features an elephant that got made fun of for its giant ears. But could fly. But could fly. And these planes, several of them, look like Dumbo because the fuel sludge is actually down below the wing, the wings above the craft, and it's raised up above the craft. So it looks a lot like Dumbo, the character. Right. Well, some of the bombers of the day, the B-17 and the B-29, had been outfitted to carry a large raft on the bottom. That's right. Remember, this is before helicopters, a little early for that. So what they would do is they would have a, a bomber come over and drop a lifeboat for the stranded airmen. Yes. Or big Navy boats, personnel. too. The yeah. big planes carried big boats because originally the Dumbo was a particular type of aircraft, but then it started being all these different kinds of aircrafts that did this kind of thing where they had a boat on the belly that they could drop. Exactly. So this is... And the Brits yeah. had one, I guess, a long time ago. You told me this earlier tonight that dropped a sailboat? Yeah. The first airdropped lifeboat was British and it was a 32-foot wooden canoe-shaped model. That was the lifeboat. I believe it had a sail. It was designed in 1943 by the famous British boat architect, Ufa Fox, and it was designed to be dropped from an Avro Lancaster. It's a heavy bomber. And this was meant to help rescue air crew that were down in the English Channel. Right. And you could rig it for sailing, which was great because the English yeah, Channel is well, notoriously windy. <laughs> you and can go to France or England. You don't need a motor. Yeah. You're not going to run out of fuel. You can. It's, it's, a, it's yeah, a pretty good idea. It's a little unwieldy looking and bulky, but it, apparently it worked okay. It wasn't the best design. but It looks like the, one yeah. of those smaller version of those boats in Captain Phillips that you see on the back of cargo <laughs> ships. It's like a big bubble. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's meant to, it's, But this one yeah. has a hole so you can put a mast out of it. What's going to figure out later on in the story here is that when you're in a little tiny raft, waves are giant. Yeah. So you need something, like we said in the, in the movie Captain Phillips, it's kind of like a capsule of sorts, and so it can withstand high waves. Now, the term Dumbo, though, is kind of a non-official terminology nickname for a lot of these different float planes and uh, flying boats, as they call them. So you have the PBY, which was called a Dumbo during air-sea rescue operations. Right, and which during, looks and more like the elephant than the than a B-17. A little, the B-17 yeah. doesn't look like the elephant, really. No, the, no, no. But the PBY yeah. has the wing way up above. Yeah, it's kind of a high, right, yeah. a high fixed wing. So you could see where maybe the ears resemble the Dumbo the elephant coming down. Yeah. Like it was a very popular movie in 1941. And what was being watched in the movie 1941 or two with the Steven Spielberg comedy about World War II. Oh, 1940. Yes, called was, 1941. Yes. But that was, didn't yes. came out way later. Right. Oh, the but General they were watching, watching Dumbo. In that's the, what General was watching in the movie theater when John Belushi went nuts and attacked Hollywood Boulevard. So, yes. So, yeah. The plane, the PBY Catalina, had the unofficial nickname of Dumbo for air-sea rescue missions. And it had some great qualifications in that you can land on the water pretty much anywhere as long as the waves aren't too high. And they had made some modifications with it. So much more beneficial than dropping a life canoe or lifeboat or life sailboat is that this thing could land and a platform was modified to come down so they could pull guys directly out of the water. Right. So it made rescue much more easy. Plus, it, it had pretty good defense capabilities. There were several gunners on board and you could take off again. And also, these were designed for attack missions as well. Like I said, you could patrol up the coast and drop bombs on enemy ships and submarines. Just so our listeners understand, that would be different outfitting. It would have more armaments and and a different kind of crew as an attack plane versus a rescue plane. Well, you certainly have your gunners on board. Uh, You had mid-level gunners and a tail gunner, I believe, and a front turret gunner. So, And in that capacity, it was called the CAT, 
short for Catalina. So right. it's a little more, a little more exciting, a little more uh, cool. You wouldn't call it a Dumbo. <laughs> you don't want anything big and slow and flopping around for a combat mission. Well, in Dumbo, it's funny. It's one of those rare military nicknames. It's not actually an acronym. It's a Disney elephant. It's a Disney <laughs> elephant. Because it's not it's, short yeah. for something. Right. And, you know, New Yorkers will know that it's short for a neighborhood. The acronym oh, that di- below. directly under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. There you go. Which okay. is a great neighborhood. Yes, right. But, but there's also a movie called Operation Dumble, I believe. Yes. Yeah. The other thing about it, for listeners who are trying to imagine what this plane looks like, if you're old enough to remember, or perhaps you're a hipster that's watching me TV from time to time, Fantasy Island, that little airplane that would come in that Hervé Vélechaise would say, the plane, the plane. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That little plane, it was a small version. It was a Grumman Widgeon, but it's, yeah. it's very similar in appearance to the type of aircraft that we're talking about here, yes. where it's got the floats and the wheels are in the side and the wings way up above the fuel sludge. Yeah, twin, twin engine, engine yeah. with a high fixed wing overhead. Yeah. And that was originally designed, I believe, for the civilian market. But as happened during war, it was appropriated for military purposes as well, but a lot smaller passenger capacity. So, yeah. you know, because you can't have red buttons and a bunch of the B-level stars of the day clogging up the trip. Remember? And for, yeah. the, for you youngsters, red buttons is a person, not an actual <laughs> button. No, no, they, these were, these were, you know, these were I don't actors. know if you picked the best guy there for that um, uh, If analogy. you are my age, you'll know who that is, or yeah. you should. But what we're saying is that nowadays it's changed because you, it's okay to see big stars on TV shows. But back then, you had to be older and you, maybe your career was, uh, you, you were kind of in retirement semi and, and you wanted to be on TV. So yeah. it was fun to do. So you either did that or the love boat. You know, Hervé Villachez used to live a few blocks from oh, here, really? from where we're recording. Oh, really? right he now. never yeah. waved at you, did he? From, no, he yeah. was, uh, unfortunately, he had passed away before I got to the uh, I did drive by the house he used to live in, though, out of curiosity. It was, it was a sad little place, honestly. But, right, uh, exactly. Let's not go there. No, no, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> thanks for bringing it down. But the point is that as we'll be employed in this search, they had flying boats, as they called them, that were equipped to do these kind of rescue searches with varying degrees of success. So there were ships that were notified. There were planes. Basically, this is turning now into a serious problem. The Dinner Key Dumbo, which was a PBY with 10 airmen aboard, took off at 6.20 p.m. to go out in search of Flight 19. At that time, people were still in touch with Flight 19, loosely. There were no regular conversations happening. So 10 guys are on this plane. Not too long after it gets into the air, all radio contact is lost with it. They can't get in touch with it. They're trying for over an hour, no response. Yeah. At that point, they actually have to start talking about sending a search plane for the search plane. So about an hour later, another plane known as a Martin Mariner by the call sign of Training 49 took off from a seaplane base at Banana River Naval Air Station to join the search. And they were advised to fly on a course that would allow them to rendezvous with another Martin Mariner, Training 32, call sign, after flying in a different direction so the two aircraft could maximize their search area. They were then told to check back in an hour at 8.30 p.m. They never did. 13 men were on board Training 49, and those 13 men were never seen again. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. We'll be back in one week with part two of our series on Flight 19. We'd like to thank Blue Apron and The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring us, as well as our patrons at patreon.com. Please, please remember to visit podcast.study and complete that five-minute anonymous survey. We told them we would have the most respondents because you guys are so awesome. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Nick Jones. 
Hi, I'm Stephen Terrell, and I give permission to astonishing legends to use my voice however they see fit, galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Fantastic. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Good night.